Kelly Slater. You know, sometimes I just can't sleep because I'm so excited about surfing the next day. Surfing's most iconic figure with 11 world titles, both the youngest and oldest champion ever. There was a, a columnist who tried to put your feats into uh, context. I cannot think of another athlete who's matched Slater's genius for such a long period of time. The Florida native still travels the globe to compete, but made a brief stop in Malibu for a day on the surf. How does it feel when you're surfing at your best? It's just something natural. It just feels like you're meant to be there doing that thing at that time. And to give us a glimpse of life away from the sport. You ever imagine that it would turn into all this? No, it's definitely a fulfilling thing, and I just want to feel like I was part of helping make it happen. Slater explains when he'll be ready to retire, relives a recent brush with death. I was like in kind of going into serious shock, and um, you know, potentially could have just drowned right then. And reflects on the most pivotal lesson from three decades on the pro circuit. You wrote in your book, there was never a time in my life that I grew so much in such a short amount of time. It's you know, one of the most awful feelings in the world. While he's still a force to be reckoned with, it's a recent project away from competition that may become his greatest legacy. It was incredible. I felt like we found gold for the first time or something, you know, like surfer's gold. And holds the potential to put surfing on the biggest stage in sports. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. All right, so I obviously have to start by giving you a hard time about your uh, schedule just based on the difficulty of yeah. uh, getting this set up. H how often does your schedule change? My schedule changes every morning <laughs> based on the surf, basically. You know, I mean, as, you, as you've seen, and, and yeah, I'm sorry for that. Uh, as you've seen, though, the um, surf's unpredictable, and my life is based around what the waves are doing. and. Um, that sounds like some burnout thing from the 70s or something, but it's really true. I mean, I, I basically get up and live my life according to what what the surf's doing. So, you know, we've... Uh, I, we've I mean, you, you could get up, you know, one morning in Hawaii and see the weather such in Australia where you hop on a plane that day and fly to Australia, something yeah, like that had, dramatic. Had we not had this interview lined up for today, I would have done that the other day. Really? Yeah. There was a... A big cyclone that hit Fiji and then moved down between Fiji and New Zealand and there was great surf in Australia all week. How often do you travel? I pretty much just permanently travel. Um, people ask me where I live, I say in a suitcase, but I, I mean I have a home in Australia, I have a home in Florida, um, I have a home in Hawaii and I have a, a place here in California that um, I stay at. So I have, actually I have two places in California I stay at. So. Um, I'm just sort of set up, and every, every other place I go, I have friends that have homes, and I stay with them usually. Does the travel ever get old? Yeah, the travel gets old. Um, I mean, after 32 years, you mentioned of doing it. Yeah. Is it... There's a certain monotony to, to traveling and competing at the same places every year, but um, the, I think the excitement of travel never disappears. I mean, I always said if I wasn't a surfer, I'd probably get a job like... Um, doing body work or being a chef or you know some something I could get up and move and go and and uh, check out different places in the world. I understand you're known to show up at the airport like minutes before an international flight yeah. will take off. I th yeah I am I get I actually get really um, been some close calls with your agent Terry. Oh I miss call I miss flights pretty often but um oh you really do 
Yeah, I missed some flights. We missed one the other day, but it was an inner island flight in Hawaii, and it, we, there was another one half an hour later. But uh, what's the they, worst one you've missed? No, the worst one. Remember, there was one I got to going to Chile, and I don't know how they let me on the flight. But from where were I you was, flying out of? We were flying from LA to Chile, and uh, a friend of mine was on the flight, and we were in Brentwood, and we we left Brentwood two hours before the flight. And it's usually, you know, if there's no traffic, it's like a 20 minute drive. And it took us an hour and 45 minutes. Got there 15 minutes before the flight was supposed to take off. And the manager of the flight is like, oh, no problem, no problem. But uh, I don't know, the guy the guy uh, surfed or something, the manager. And, and we pulled up at the curb. I think it was 16 minutes till takeoff <laughs> at International. And uh, I walked in and I was like stressing out. And the guy's like, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay. No problem, we'll get you on. <laughs> He's just like super cool Latin guy. Explain why you travel and pack a heavy water filtration system. I occasionally will carry a, um, I have this suitcase uh, full of uh, a filter system, filtration system for water that I do take. Um, just to know I'm getting clean water where I, wherever I go. It might be in Brazil one week and then South Africa the next week or whatever. and just to kind of have a consistency in your water. You know, if you, you get somewhere and you don't want to get um, a bunch of bottles of uh, plastic bottles of water, so that's kind of the, the idea behind it. Keep a consistent hydration and, and um, not, not create too much garbage. And you can use them in a municipal water source instead of like, you know, just having to go buy a bottle of water all day. Why do you pack food? No, I'll travel, like when I go to Fiji, for instance, I'll travel, half my suitcase is just food. And what do you put in it? Um, I don't know, just whatever I like in my diet, you know? I mean, I'll, I'll have like a big thing of chia seeds and I'll have hemp seeds and I'll have, um, I don't know, snack bars that I like and gluten-free pancake mix and just, I don't know, I'll, I'll take sometimes a couple gallons of um, hemp milk or almond milk or something. So, I don't know, just when I get somewhere then I know that I'm sort of like with familiar things around me. I, I really think it's just to, to make me feel comfortable when I get somewhere. I, I understand that there is at least some digestive science behind your diet. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty into it. I'm kind of a food geek myself. Um, I try to go mostly gluten-free. Uh, I, I um, try to eat as organically as possible and um, as clean as possible. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, when I was when I was younger, I I felt like uh, you know I ate, I had so much sugar and crap in my diet that um, you know it would just it would just affect me kind of strangely when I was a kid. So you know I used to get like I don't know um, when I was a kid I used to get these boils like sores on my body sometimes, and I think it was because I just had too much sugar and milk and crap in my diet. So I pretty much cut almost all dairy out of my diet. Um, at this point, I don't really eat um, much corn or wheat or um, grains. Uh, I try to just stay away from gluten, and uh, I, I've, you know, I've done blood te blood tests to see what I'm allergic to. So, you know, cut out certain foods and um, try to get the body working as efficiently as possible. How do you think that's helped you? Um, my well, I used to have pretty bad sinus problems all the time. I used to get like a sinusitis where I got it so bad before I had to go to the hospital a couple times. Um, I used to have, I think it was from a corn uh, allergy that 
I almost checked myself into the uh, into the hospital in the emergency room once uh, over New Year's because I could barely breathe. Um, and uh, it, it was soon after that I got a, a blood test done and corn was like one of the most uh, highly allergic things I had in my diet. So, well, yeah, and it's something I didn't know. And my favorite thing was these red hot blue uh, corn chips that I would eat like a bag or two of every single day. And I would eat that with avocados and I would just like, I would get these kind of asthmatic things happening and I couldn't understand why. And then after I got the blood test and it said corn was like one of the highest allergens in my diet. So, <clears throat> um, you know, sometimes you just don't know. Uh, 11 time world champion, both the youngest ever and the oldest ever to do so. But there was a, a columnist who tried to put your feats into uh, context and I thought it was really great. It was the best one I read and it goes, um, I cannot think of another athlete who's matched Slater's genius for such a long period of time. Not Kareem or Wilt or Russell, not Schumacher, not Gretzky or Nicholas or Bolt, not Tyson or Ali or LT or Manning, not Koufax or Babe Ruth, not Magic or Bird or the Pistol. To find the proper analogy, you need to look outside of sports. Slater is to surfing what Sinatra was to crooning. <laughs> wow. Oh, that was kind of cool. That's amazing. How, how much longer could you see yourself going for? To, to me, there's just two things. It's, a, you know, your body holding up and it's your mind being open. And, and you also have to be able to think ahead of the curve a little bit. You, you have to see where things are going and be able to, to, to kind of predict that. Um, or at least go in that direction. Um, you know, but it's different. Everyone's, everyone's got their own unique perspective and point of view in life. To, to have the inspiration and that excitement every morning like you have when you're a kid is really hard to do, you know, you gotta... And you still have that? Uh, not every day, no. Okay. Um, no, but sometimes, you know, sometimes I just can't sleep because I'm so excited about surfing the next day. Um, but uh, no, I don't have it the same as when I was a kid, but I think it's attainable. Um, I think t in order to do that, you, ha you have to just, um, you have to be able to let go of certain things that are, that are holding you back, you know, your mental filters. And provided you could do that and continue to do that, then there's really no end in sight. No, there's no end in sight. You know, I think it's most, in surfing it's most evident in big waves because you look at all the best big wave guys in the world are in their 30s and 40s. Um, you could argue even some of them are in their 50s, so. Those are guys who have so much time and experience in the water, in the ocean, in the elements, that they, they just know how to make the right decisions and how to pick the right waves. And they're comfortable enough after years and years and years of, of doing it to know what, the, what to expect. And, um, you know, but in the fast twitch um, kind of young man's game of, you know, aerials and competing and, um, uh, you know, small waves, you know, it's just, it's natural. The young kids are more excited and they're, they're quicker. And, um, you know, you have to work training your body to be fast and keep up and keep your rotation, keep your flexibility. It was funny preparing for this interview. I was reading, you know, a slew of stories, but one was a 2006 New York Times story that wrote about your potential retirement. And obviously that's now a decade ago. Yeah. Why do you think you're still competing? Competing is kind of just my stage for what I, what I'm skilled at. Really, um, I enjoy. I enjoy. There's certain aspects of it I enjoy, but it it keeps a lot of 
what I love to do relevant, I guess, because it pushes me to, to increase my level all the time and to be working on that. I think when you're good at something, it's hard to kind of just walk away from it and do something else maybe you're not as good at. Um, and I, you know, also I, I really love the travel. The idea of stopping doing this, I, just the idea that I miss all the uh, places and the experiences we have and all the places I've gotten to go over the years. But I mean, I can still go the, to those places, obviously, but um, I don't know, the competition kind of helps me to push my level too, you know, to get up in the morning and have a goal and, um, and to see how far I can push that. I think the, the idea of pushing it beyond that, I mean, I don't want, I always said when I was 40, I would never be on tour. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I, I can't think in my brain at all that when I'm 50, I'd be on tour. But the idea that I could surf events and be relevant and potentially be a threat at an event at 50 years old feels kind of cool, you know, so. Uh, business is obviously increasingly becoming more a part of your life. How do you go about evaluating offers? Um, at this point, you know, when I was younger, obviously, if, if I got an offer from... When I was 15, I got an offer from Quicksilver, um, and they wanted to pay me $5,000 a year uh, for travel or for whatever. And um, I, you know, I had no money or whatever. I just thought, wow, that's so cool, $5,000 a year. I can't believe it. I'm, I was like gasping on the phone, like covering, oh my gosh. <laughs> and uh, it was so exciting for me, you know? like growing up in this little little city and and uh doing this thing i love and all of a sudden somebody wants to pay me for it you know the all you see is dollar signs you know that's that's the first thing that comes to mind and then as you as you follow that the dollar signs you know you're obviously going to go towards what's bigger and bigger and hopefully it'll be with some some brand or company that you like as well or you like the people at um but all those things evolve and and for me at this point to do a sponsorship. It's got to be something that's in line with my philosophies on life, on sustainability. Um, you know, if it's food, it's got to be something that I feel healthy or something I would eat or buy or use myself anyways. Um, I think that's kind of the same with any other products or things I work to endorse. It's got to be something that makes sense in my life. Um, you know, I did get a few offers from like drink companies and they weren't in line with the things that I uh, I think about health and um, they weren't educating anyone about health so I didn't I didn't take those offers and in fact I started my own drink company with some friends uh, based around what we thought was good um, so yeah um, instead of just going after the dollars I was able to work on something that I felt a lot more strongly about how did the idea for the surf park come about the idea for the surf park came about um, I had a, a guy who used to shape my surfboards named Matt Keckley call me and he said, you got to see this thing I saw and eventually anyways, he showed me this video of this wave this guy had created, this idea for a wave this guy had created um, in this pool that was, I guess to most easily describe it, it's like a donut shaped pool and it would, there was an outer wall that would, that had these moving parts and they would kind of line up in unison and create these like weight you know it was like a wave going around the outside of this pool with these pistons right and um it was um i don't know i saw this video and my brain just i couldn't turn it off i'm like we got to make this thing this is incredible and um easier said than done easier said than done yeah 
Yeah, long story short, we started to look into the, the actual technology to create the swell. And we realized that that technology wasn't going to be the one that would work for us. Um, that didn't have as much energy as we, as we hoped, and it wouldn't create the wave we wanted. So we kind of evolved the technology from there. Um, the, the idea of how to make a swell, kind of quietly kept working on it for years and years. Um, obviously now it's 2016. That was like 2005 when we started this. About two and a half, three years ago, my partner said to me, uh, he said, look, if we're ever gonna get this thing off the ground, you and I need to just put our money up and build one of these things, buy some land, um, make this wave, see if it works, or you just go out in a blaze of glory, um, failing. So I was like, all right, let's just do it. Let's just, let's just figure this thing out. Could you see the day where there's a, a surf league competition at a wave pool or even one day in the Olympics? Yeah, well, one of the guys we work with, when we had a first meeting with him, he said, you know, I think you, got, I think you need kind of like an idea about like your ultimate goal with this thing. And he said, you know, maybe, maybe that goal when talking to people you want to work with is, we think this can get surfing in the Olympics. In order to, to have a consistent, fair, not even for the Olympics, but even for surf competitions, to, to have a repeatable, you know, comparing apples to apples kind of competition where it's um, more of an objective thing and less subjective, then I, I think this is the way to do it. I think that we could create a, a good enough, high enough, high quality enough wave in order to um, make the, play, the playing field totally fair for people, you know? It's not like you got the lucky wave that came or he read the conditions right, which is a, obviously, uh, I think a huge skill in surfing as well. Reading the ocean right, picking, making the right choices. There's a, there's a lot to that. I think that does define people who know the ocean better than the next guy. But, um, you know, just, just to be able to compare the actual skills on a wave, I think it's easier, it would be much easier to do if you had a good, repeatable quality wave. So, yeah, I think that we could hold competitions. I know, I think we're going to, I don't even think we're going to, I know we're going to hold competitions in the pool at some point. Um, maybe sort of exhibitionary kind of thing to start, but I've had literally thousands of people inquire to me, how do I get in that thing, you know? A day after, day after I put it online, Two days after I put it online, because it had soaked in a little bit, actually, and I had already had to think about it, because I got hundreds, if not more, requests from people, friends, and people I didn't know to surf the thing. It had to be a cool feeling. It was incredible. In fact, I, I don't know if I could ever repeat that or ever have that happen in any other way. I felt like we found gold for the first time or something, you know, like surfer's gold. I don't know what it was, but the, the feeling was that we had sort of achieved this dream for so many people. They saw it and they were like, wow, I've imagined that, but I never got my mind around it. And now it's actually, it exists. Way back when kind of took a crash course in finance because I think you were in high school even before your senior prom, you were already one of the top paid uh, surfers in the world. And then fast forward a few years, I think you're around 21, uh, going to buy a house. And I believe you find out you're basically broke. Hmm. Uh, how did you handle that? You know, my story's kind of like a lot of other stories out there you hear. And, you know, I grew up, we didn't have much money. I, I wouldn't necessarily classify us as poor, but no, we didn't have any money. To, I mean, my mom was scraping quarters together to get my lunch 
paid for at school most days, you know. I think my mom raised the three of us boys on $2,000 a month and not much help from my dad. So we didn't, you know, we didn't have much money. Uh, and so, you know, it's not a sob story. It's just the way it was in, in my family. You know, we didn't, when you are raised that way, you're, you don't have a lot of uh, intelligence around money. And so by the time I was about 20, I guess I was like 21, 22, yeah, I tried to go buy a house uh, with my then fiance and uh, found out I was broke. And I didn't take, I didn't handle my finances at all. My mom just kind of took care of it for me. And, um, and uh, so it was a real kind of uh, quick wake up lesson in, in learning about your money and, and taking care of what you have and planning for the future uh, at that time, you know. So I, I had already been a world champion. I had made over a million dollars in my life at that point and I was in debt, so. Um, <laughs> it was a pretty quick wake-up call. What did you learn from it? Um, I learned to, well, number one, to start handling my own finances and know what I was having and, and to not overextend myself. You know, it was, a, it was an opportunity for me to kind of wake up and, and take care of uh, myself and take care of other people, too, you know. It, your parents got divorced. Uh, your mom, you know, was basically responsible for taking care of you and uh, your two brothers and times were tough uh, financially. How often would you move condo to condo mm. growing up? Uh, we lived in this, we lived in one house till I was 11, I think, 11 or 12. And then we moved, um, moved to another condo for about three years. And then we moved to another house for a couple years and another house for about six months. And we moved around a little bit. Um, I think we lived in one, two, three, four, five five houses between 11 and, I don't know, 18 years old or something like that. Um, but yeah, there, there were numerous occasions where we didn't have the money for things, you know? And um, one of them was, um, one of them was in 1986, that same year, um, was the the world titles the world amateur titles in England? We didn't have the money to get there. I didn't have the sponsorship to get there. And uh, my mom had this 1938 Gibson Gold Top banjo that she played, and um, she actually pawned it to get us the money to go on the the trip. And um, so, at the time, I didn't think much about it. I'm sure it stung her, you know, but. Um, I didn't even know. She just, you know, did what she had to do as a parent to get me and my brother to England. I think she sold it for 600 bucks or something, and that thing's probably worth like 30 grand now. Wow. So, actually, if you know, if you know anyone who has one, let me know. I wouldn't mind purchasing one. <laughs> How often did she work, and what were the varying jobs that she held? Um, my mom had a bunch of different jobs uh, throughout the years. You know, I mean, at one point when I was about... I guess when I was like eight, she became a firefighter, an EMT. Um, she put herself through school to go and do that. I think she was the first female firefighter in our county. Um, then she did that for like two years. She got sexually harassed by her captain and ended up quitting the job. She became a bartender uh, for a little while. And she she uh, was bartending at the bar where my dad used to drink a lot. So she got she kind of got a chance to keep an eye on him. 
and uh, probably get them a few free beers. <laughs> so it was cheaper for us, you know. Um, and then uh, she worked at the, uh, right around that time also, she worked at the, um, the place where, actually I think it was before that, but she had worked at this little uh, food place at the beach where I grew up surfing. And um, the, the Islander the Hut? The Islander Hut, yeah. And she, she had funny stories about that because by the end of the week when she would get her paycheck, she would owe a few dollars for all the money, all the food we had eaten. <laughs> so basically she just almost kept it at a certain level where she never, she never made any money at that job. We ate all of her money uh, throughout the week on a tab. Your dad, uh, that I know, tough topic because before he passed, it ended uh, really well, um, but he was an alcoholic. And looking back on that now, how do you think his drinking impacted you growing up? Yeah, it's... Yeah, alcoholism is a, a, a weird thing. You know, my dad didn't drink a hard liquor. He just liked to drink beer, and but he would drink beer all day long, and he would think he had two beers, and he could barely walk, you know. And, um, and you know, he wasn't like abusive to us or anything like that. It wasn't like some crazy drunk dad. It was just like my dad was like the fun drunk dad. In fact, he wasn't a sincere guy very often, but when he was, he was it was very sincere. You know, there's a really fun side to my dad. I think everyone to a man, probably almost every single person my dad ever met, they liked him, um, you know, but some people didn't, you know, think he was the greatest guy towards my mom, and and uh, he was, um, I don't know, he taught me in different ways. Unfortunately, you know, some of the ways he taught me was, was uh, by screwing up, and other ways it was by being funny and being a good dad. How well do you recall sleeping on the concrete driveway? Oh, that's like yesterday. Yeah, I remember that really clearly. What do you remember from it? Well, my parents would get in these sort of knock-down, drag-out screaming fights once in a while. And it seemed to be, I don't know how often it was, you know. Looking back, it seemed like it was all the time. But it might have been like once a month. I I don't really remember exactly. There was just one time I remember it was getting really bad, and and we were supposed to go to the mall, and I was really excited we were going to go to the mall right after dark. And... um, so we were getting ready to go outside and get in the van and drive and they started fighting and I just remember them just screaming and screaming and screaming and and uh, next thing you know I realized we weren't going to the mall because it was uh, almost nine o'clock and the mall closed at nine and this price started at like six or seven and uh, so my brother and I didn't want to go back in the house so we just like laid down in the concrete. I remember just laying there in the concrete kind of my eyes open but trying to go to sleep and just listening to him scream and yell at each other. Your dad passed away 62 years old after battling cancer for yeah. a couple of years. And from what I read, you were angry at him for a long time. Um, what did it take to get to the space where you were able to let that anger go before he passed away? In my early 20s, I realized I, was, I had a lot of anger with my dad. I remember particularly in 95, I was 23 years old. I remember just being having... S- like nights where I'd go to sleep and I'd be so angry at my dad um, and I talked to my mom about it one time and and she said uh, she goes you know well what do you want to do about it I said I don't know I just want to talk to dad I want to like ask him these things she goes like you can do whatever you want but you're probably not going to get the answer you're looking for you know I just she's like I know your dad so well you're, you're he's probably not going to answer it in a way that's going to answer anything for you you got to answer it yourself what do you want to ask him? I don't know, just like, 
why he drank so much or, you know, why he was the way he was or, you know, I, I don't even really know. I just was, I just had this anger towards him. And uh, I think my mom saying that kind of resolved that for me because I think I realized it was probably true. You know, he probably couldn't answer things for me that I needed to answer for myself. You wrote in your book, um, there was never a time in my life that I grew so much in such a short amount of time. I stopped thinking the world revolved around me and started becoming a man and a person. Uh, when talking about kind of the last, you know, couple months of uh, your father's life, what about that period do you think kind of allowed you to grow up? And when your parent dies, you, I think you, um, there's a, gosh, I'd explain it. The, it's a, it's, you know, one of the most awful feelings in the world. There's also this sort of like, um, sense of like, a. um, there's just the sense that you've got to grow up and you've got to learn things and you're, you're sort of forced, you, you know, there's no direction to go except for to, to kind of answer things for yourself in some way. There was always that sense that I, one day I'll ask my dad this or one day he'll tell me this or I'll learn this from my dad. And, you know, there's not, there's not a whole lot of things that I look back. Usually somebody says, most people think back on their dad and they go, my dad taught me this, my dad taught me that, or he used to say this. And, when I think that about my dad, I just think of all the funny things he used to say. My dad didn't really, he never sat us down and said, listen, kids, you need to, you know, do this with your lives. So you need, in fact, he was, he was almost completely hands off in that way. He was, um, you know, I think, I, I think in my early 20s, I was sort of yearning for that father figure, my, my dad to come through and kind of like rescue me with this perfect answer of like what I should do in my life or something. And I, I think that was what I struggled with. Um, after having like financial issues and and um, you know relationships fall apart and stuff like that, um, but uh, you know it became obvious when he passed away, or just in that time before that that wasn't going to happen and I was going to have to find those answers elsewhere and that was okay you know. Your uh, late friend uh, Brock Little uh, said uh, about you. Kelly wants people to like him so much that he never says no, but his fame and success don't seem to feel very good to him. Mm. What do you think of that? Brock rarely said something that wasn't just spot on or true. Um, yeah, there's, there, there's a lot of things around um, fame or success that I find, I, I think if you look at people who are really successful, a lot of times they're doing it for strange reasons. Um, and I'd include, my, include myself in that. You know, I think, I think when I was young, I really, I just wanted to be recognized and noticed or something, you know? It was like a, a sense of insecurity. I wanted to be good at something so that it would like cover up um, any of my own personal insecurities. And so I, I found that I was, I became, I was, I was, I always felt like I was pretty gifted physically um, with being able to learn things or do things. And, you know, surfing became my craft. And, and uh, I felt like if I surfed really good or, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of psychoanalyzing myself a little bit here, but uh, looking back, it makes sense to me. Um, you know, I felt like it would make any kind of personal or family pain or insecurities kind of go away if I was really good at something, you know. And, um, 
you know, I could, I could always re resort to, um, to kind of relying on success, physical success or, you know, competitive success to, to, um, make me feel whole or something, you know, I don't know. That's a little bit of a, an overview or whatever, but it, it you know, I, and to what it, extent have you always found that to be true that the success would make you feel whole? Yeah, I thought that the success would make me feel whole or whatever. But, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, you've got to go to bed and live with yourself, you know, and, um, and in your own head. And it, just because I've had success or won titles or contests or made money, those kind of things, it, that hasn't made any of the problems or issues that I deal with myself disappear, you know. It just, um, in some ways, it can, it can probably make them a little more difficult because you're not forced to deal with things. There was a period of time where just because of your single-minded commitment to the sport, you would go pretty much months, I think, without calling your mom or your brothers. I mean, what was the mindset during that time? There were times where I felt like my mom was peering into my life a little too much and like making too strong opinions of my life. So at one point in the mid, you know, there's just this point in the mid nineties, mid, mid late nineties where like a lot of things came to a head for me in my life. And I was trying to figure out my relationships and my friendships and my family stuff. And, um, my mom and I started butting, butting heads really kind of heavily around it. And at one point I didn't speak to my mom for like six months. And, um, but you know, I felt like, I felt like she kind of crossed the line with me telling me how to live my life. And, I was trying to figure it out and I, you know, I probably wasn't man enough to just grow up and say, oh, maybe my mom's right. Or even if your mom's not right, you got to tell her she's right, you know, <laughs> and you got to just go, let it go. You know, mom, moms are just trying to look out for you. But, you know, I was, I was struggling with being my own person and, and finding my own identity. And, um, you know, unfortunately it, it, uh, our relationship suffered a bit for a while there. What was that process like for you of just finding yourself and your own identity? To find my own identity, I, I kind of had to, I felt like I had to have a little bit of like tough love with people around me somewhat. Um, Why? Well, because, you know, I was resentful about the, the, the money situation we had had where, you know, basically all my money was gone and, um, and then, you know, also trying to have my mom tell me how to do things and why to do things. And I, I started, I, I kind of, well, you know, I did Baywatch and you I did. didn't, I was, well, I was very reluctant to do it. I really didn't want to do it, but my mom and my manager at the time really wanted me to do it. And, and, um, he more or less just signed me up without me approving it. And I don't know how, how that happens, but in my life at that time that happened. And, um, I was so embarrassed that I was going to have to do the show and I, I just really didn't want to. I wanted to go surfing and I wanted to win contests. I wanted to be a professional surfer and that was it, you know. Um, you know, I wasn't trying to go be a, an actor and, you know, surfing wasn't some launch pad to acting. It was, surfing was my craft and that was what I was good at. I wish I had been a little more uh, mature and being able to deal with that, but I didn't have the skills at the time, you know. I was 23 years old, 24 years old, something like that. How's being a father been? Uh, it's been interesting in my life because just because I'm not a full-time dad, I, you know, the whole time my daughter has been raised by her mother, um, 
uh, almost 100% uh, in physical time. And, um, you know, I've been traveling. So, you know, when your daughter's three and you're traveling around the world the whole time, you're like, you know, if you're not coming home every week between contests, you're not seeing her very much. You know, she can't just jump on a plane and come visit me. So, um, what's the hardest part of that for you? Hardest part, I think, probably the hardest part for me is my daughter feeling like she doesn't have a dad there all the time, you know, so, uh, you know, and that, that's hard for her. I know that was especially hard for her um, when she was younger, so, um, yeah. You know, I, a lot of times, a lot of times people have kids and then their career kind of stops or gets put on hold and, you know, mine didn't, you know, so I, I think in in that sense, I probably have a little bit of guilt about that, you know, because, uh, you know, I, I, you know, kids are just innocent, you know, and so they need to, they need to have adults around them to, you know, just to physically be there at all times and so I, I think that's probably the toughest thing for me looking back at uh, you know fatherhood. You were 10 I think your dad was the coach of your football team yeah. at the time and he actually let you skip football practice to go surfing. Yeah. Why was that such kind of a pivotal moment for you mentally then? This is probably like in 1982 or something and and you know surfing was probably f professional surfing was like six years old at the time. You know, I, I think the first world tour year was 1977. So five, six years down the track, um, it's not like professional surfing is some big uh, potential life to live, you know. I think the person who won the world title the first year made like $2,000 that year in prize money. You know, it wasn't a lucrative thing. It wasn't like going to play football or baseball or basketball. You know, I was a pretty good football player. Uh, and those were potentially huge careers to follow. Was to, I know, but I was a small kid. I wasn't going to be like some big football player and, and uh, probably be successful at that. But I, I think my dad allowing me to skip uh, football practice kind of gave me a green light to go and surf as much as I want. And your mom would let you skip school sometimes to go occasionally. surfing as well, right? And yeah, occasionally. as context, I mean, I think when you finished high school, you finished seventh academically in your class. So even if you were getting to skip school occasionally, I mean, yeah. there was still enough of an importance you put on academics that it wasn't negatively yeah. impacting. I, I I was responsible with my schooling. My mom would my mom would allow us to skip one day per semester per semester to go surf. Okay. If there was contests, yeah, we could miss more days. And, you know, if we were, I knew that if I was a good student, my president, my, my principal at the school was going to let me go and, and uh, give me extra days off. So you started surfing around three years old. By 14 years old, you're beating professionals that have surfed longer than you are old. What do you think allowed you to become so talented at surfing so quickly? I think talent comes from it's a re it's a it's sort of a recipe it's like a concoction of things um you know sometimes people just have good timing sometimes people have a natural talent sometimes they get lucky and there's all these sort of things that can happen i think a, a bunch of those parts of the formula were given to me in my life 
So, you know, I think I was naturally talented. Um, I think I was, I think I was gifted with understanding the ocean and it comes natural to me, you know. My, my dad was a real water person. Um, and just growing up at the beach, watching waves, watching guys surf, all that kind of stuff, it, that became real natural to me to understand how to maneuver on a wave and fit myself into that as, a, as if I was a, a natural part of that energy, a natural part of the, the motion that's happening in the ocean. So <clears throat> I, was, I always felt like there was a, I, even now, I always feel like there's a, a per perfect way to be in sync with what's happening in the ocean. You know, people look at the ocean that don't know anything about it and they're like, that's crazy looking. But once you put yourself in this situation, you realize there's a flow to everything. The danger that's inherent with your sport. Uh, I mean, we can go to the, the contest recently in Hawaii, the Big Eddie. How scared were you at times of that? I don't know. I wasn't real. When I was actually uh, in the contest, yeah, the, the waves were massive the other day. It was it was pretty scary, but it was more scary the lead up to it, you know, the night before when you hear, because we call the, what happens, we call these buoys. There's these buoys offshore a couple hundred miles off or 10 miles off or whatever. You know, there's a few different buoys in the ocean. So you call, you, you look up online or you call these buoys and it tells you the height and the interval between waves. And from that, you can determine how big the waves are going to be. So the night before we're calling the buoys and uh, we see this buoy pop to like 20, 26, 25 or 26 feet at like 19 seconds, which basically means it's going to be freaking huge. <laughs> that basically just translates like 50 foot faces, something like that. Oh, really? Yeah. So what are the nerves? Like you, you think you could get hurt or? Oh, no. What? I mean, you, no, the nerves are you think you might drown or get in a really dangerous situation. Um, and also that pressure's on you to go out in one hour to go catch four waves. You know, that, that contest, you uh -huh. get to surf twice for an hour each and you get four waves. Um, so, you know, you want to put on a good showing and you, you want to honor the people that uh, put you into the event. Where's the most dangerous place you've ever surfed and what made it dangerous? Um, most dangerous place I've ever surfed? I would probably say it's either, uh, it's either Pipeline or um, or Mavericks up at Half Moon Bay. Um, I would say pipeline because a number of things, it's shallow, it's an intense wave. Uh, quite a number of people have died there. Drownings or getting knocked out, hitting your head on the reef, and then drowning obviously. Uh, Half Moon Bay, Mavericks, there's been, a, I know a couple, a couple of my friends have died there. It's just a big giant wave that kind of just, it's, it's way bigger than pretty much all the waves around it, just the way the the swell hits there and the way the bottom is contoured, but also the, um, there's also rocks. There's been multiple great white attacks there. There's been two or three great white attacks there. So it's just, it's got every element of fear. The water's cold. Um, it's, it's one of the most intense waves you'll ever see. How badly did you hurt yourself when you knocked yourself out in France not too long ago? Yeah, I got knocked out. <laughs> I'd laugh about it now, but. I, I had to use all my brain power to not get um, post-traumatic stress disorder afterwards because it was kind of scary. I, I almost had two wave hold down. Like I came up and the second wave broke on me as I came up. And uh, I thought it was kind of funny because the waves weren't very big and I basically had a two wave hold down. A two wave hold down in surfing is kind of like, it's kind of a badge of honor. You know, once you've had a two wave hold down, you've had a really heavy wipeout. 
Okay. But this one was kind of funny because the waves were real close together, so it wasn't really like a proper two-wave hold down. But my very next wave I took off on, and I did a turn off the top of the wave, and the wave just kind of bent away from me, so my board kind of got air and flew out of the water, and I, did, I just judged it wrong, and I over-rotated in the turn, and when I fell, I fell backwards, and my, my board separated from my feet and went below me, and I fell backwards and hit my head and got knocked out instantly. I just hit my head, myself super hard back here. And so I, I, like, uh, I, I guess as I came to, I realized I was underwater, so I didn't breathe, and I just started swimming, and I kept swimming and swimming, but I didn't know which way was up. And I swam so far, I was starting to get more, I was starting to kind of like uh, become conscious more and more, but I was still like, felt like I was dreaming. And um, I realized, like, gosh, I've swum so far, I've swum like six or seven strokes and I haven't hit air, I don't know where I'm going. And my hand kind of, I felt my hand just barely kind of go above the water, so I kind of reached my face in that direction and tried to take a breath and I kind of breathed half foam and half air. And then um, I came up and I, I just was, I started going into shock really fast and uh, I just grabbed my board and turned towards shore and the next wave hit me up towards the beach. And luckily I was close to shore. And as I hit the shore, I fell off my board and the next couple waves, like one, one or two waves rolled me, kind of like I was just laying in the water, kind of getting rolled by waves, but I knew I was safe at that point. Um, and then uh, I kind of, uh, it was a really bizarre feeling because um, with the contest in town, there's a lot of fans, you know, surf fans there and stuff. Right. And so there was this, about 20 yards behind me, there was this really high seawall and there was about a hundred French people on there and they were like yelling my name and taking pictures and stuff. And nobody realized that I was injured. And so it was really, that's why I say it was like a twilight zone. Cause I was like, I was like in kind of going into serious shock and, um, you know, potentially could have just drowned right then. And, um, uh, and, and so I'm on the beach kind of like absorbing like this whole thing. And there's people like yelling my name and taking pictures. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like laying on the beach. I'm like laying there kind of completely startled at what just happened, realizing I'm really lucky. Um, surfing in the Olympics, mm. it's been, it's being considered for the 2020 games in Tokyo. Yeah. What do you think the likelihood is that it happens? It's been talked about for years, you know, there's been a lot of lobbying going on with some people in the surf world and talking to the IOC. And I know as early as 1984, they came down and watched the world championships in Huntington, some officials from the IOC. It's interesting for Japan um, because there's a pretty strong surf culture there, actually, that people might not realize. There's some great surf in Japan. I think uh, a wave pool in Japan makes a lot of sense because and, and i'm not trying to pitch like okay well, let's just run the wave pool thing and run it in the olympics but it would make sense because it gives you you can have exact start times and you know how to control your field and that kind of thing japan has great amazing surf on its day but it's a little inconsistent and um especially in the summer months is that it's a summer olympics isn't it yeah so this the summer summertime in japan can have really slow surf or no surf it can it can be really flat for periods of time. Um, that's that's sort of the that's just kind of the rule of thumb with the east coast of any country because um, all the storms are going west to east. So um, mostly they're taking waves away from you instead of sending waves towards you. In the summer summertime, you don't have much storm activity, anyways. But yeah, a wave pool in Japan would make sense because when you think about Japan, you think about engineering, you think about technology, and all those sorts of things, and you know. I, and craftsmanship is really important. Craftsmanship is totally important to Japanese. So it would be, 
it would be really interesting if if a wave pool was a was a way to display surfing the first time in, in the Olympics. So, I mean, since you brought that up, what's the process involved with actually pitching them on your technology? No, I don't, I really don't know the process because I'm not one of those people lobbying to try to get in the Olympics. But, you know, if it were to happen, I'm I'm all for it. But if, and if it doesn't, that's, that's okay with me too. But if it um, does, are you there competing? That's, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, how could you pass up? I got four years. It's still four I, years be, away. You'd yeah, be 48, but be I mean, how could you pass up the <clears throat> yeah know, time I, it's finally in the Olympics? I think if um, yeah, I think if we finally do get into the Olympics, and and I'm physically fine, if I don't have injuries, and and I get chosen by the states to to surf in that, it'd be a huge honor. Um, I think especially at that age, it would be a huge honor, and it'd be a, it'd be a great way uh, for me to say, you know, I was in that first one, or I was part of that first one when they. I don't think it would be an official sport. I think it would be a dis like a display sport or whatever, but it would be a fun thing to do. How is performing with Pearl Jam? <clears throat> um, gosh, I've had, a, I've had a, f a few really sort of surreal, lucky moments, you know, great moments uh, music-wise, but Pearl Jam's obviously the, the top of that. Um, I've played with Pearl Jam a couple times. I played with them in San Diego. I played with them in in um, in Hawaii uh, at a small, very small venue, like just a few hundred people. And I played with Eddie Vedder. I played with Eddie a couple times. You uh, guys are close, right? Yeah, Eddie and I are buddies. But I've I've had the chance to play with Eddie a couple different times on a solo thing that he's done. Actually, a cool one was that I I got to do a a song with uh, we we held this this. Uh, fundraiser one night and Eddie played and Ben Harper showed up and I played a song with the two of them and um, I also got to sing a Pearl Jam song with Ben Harper in concert in Santa Barbara and Eddie's brother was there and actually called Eddie on the phone and left him a voicemail of uh, me and Ben playing so it's kind of cool I mean I just I just love music it's just such an inherent part of everyone's life you know obviously but my parents both played music when I was a kid. I don't know why I didn't start playing guitar until I was like late teenager. But my dad always played guitar. My mom always played banjo, and they both liked to sing. And so, <clears throat> when I was a kid, I sang a lot. But um, I really didn't get into playing music and writing music until I was in my late teenage years. And it's always been a sort of, you know, a, a lesser passion than surfing, obviously. But it's always been a passion of mine. Just something I love. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to my chat with Kelly Slater. To watch more of our interview, including a tour of his outer known clothing brand headquarters, visit youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.